Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. So continuing our discussion and research into the lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram, the pentagram rituals in general, I want to start before I get into the research of others with the thing most often left out, which is the visualization before you vibrate Ata. And we're going to talk about Ata as well, and the linguistic issues with that. You always visualize yourself standing where you're standing and growing taller and taller past the ceiling, above your house, above the city, country, continent, into the atmosphere, and you're extending with your feet planted firmly on the ground. This visualization is arguably more important than anything else. Honestly, to to not do this is very dangerous, in my opinion, and everyone's opinion I've ever spoken to on the subject. So you keep visualizing yourself going past the moon, past the planets and stars, past all of space into a nothingness and you keep going through the nothingness and you can take as long as you want with this visualization because as a meditation it's teaching you how to stretch yourself vertically spiritually and you should feel it and you keep extending past the darkness and past the darkness you see the infinite light above and beyond Keter and that's very important So you're stretching to as far as you can stretch, and once you've gone through all the darkness imaginable, there, beyond everything, you you grasp that Ein Sof Or, that limitless light, which is the creation of the the Ein, the nothing, and the Ein Sof, the limitless. And it's the result of Tsimtzum, of course. And Tsimtzum, as we know, is the nothingness's self-constriction and retraction into itself to produce that first initial beam of creative light which forms the entire tree and all of creation. So then you draw that light down to your forehead with your finger or hand or dagger, depending on where you're at, either in initiatory stages or your own personal path if you're doing it that way, and you vibrate ata. So to not do that exercise is to essentially just 
grabbing the energy around your, your sphere of sensation and bringing it back down through your crown into your body and recirculating dirty current as, as some would see it. So that visualization process is, is crucial at the beginning of the pentagram rituals, of the Kabbalistic cross ritual, which is really a ritual unto itself and should be seen that way, even though we do it many times in the course of, of ritual work often. Again, there's some variation, of course, based on schools of practice and, and orders, but that's fine. Um, I highly recommend, I always would make my students go through just that meditation as an entire exercise over half an hour. We've done that over half an hour. I've put myself through doing just that visualization over half an hour many, many times. Um, and you'll find after years of doing this work that there's times when you when you want to sit down in a chair and just focus on that kind of meditation and that stretching of yourself beyond all existence. You really are letting all of your imagined, known, creative universe slip away. You're going past it but not traveling beyond it because your feet are grounded firmly and planted on the earth. And that's crucial. And actually, that's the idea that, that led me to my one of probably my greatest contribution to the corpus of neophyte grade material and golden dawn material that was entered into the mainstream of literature. Um, because I always thought, you know, wouldn't it be significant to even preface that visualization to the Kabbalistic cross with something else, something that takes us deep within the earth as a very pantheistic person. Um, I used to be very panentheistic, but now I'm a, even more pantheistic and I'm highly anti-supernatural. I, I regard all forms of supernaturalism as a, an incredible intellectual debacle. And that's not because I don't think there's miraculous and spiritual beings out there or creative folds within semiotic nature that are hard to comprehend. It's because I think the idea that there's a force outside of nature is that is that we either pray through petitionary atonement or interventionary prayer to to act within nature from outside of nature is a incredible flaw in recognizing the basic reality we find ourselves in we can have multi-dimensional multi-universal nature and dark matter and all these fascinating things that exist within nature and we don't have a need to find something miraculous outside of nature. And that's what most of my writings over the last 20 years have been targeting, is, is that what I see as a dangerous ethical fallacy, which leads to us behaving in ways that we think give us dominance over nature, give us authority to act in violation of, of natural life and will, and supersede others' dignity and right to life by claiming supernatural authority of some great gods or god or power that gives us dominance and and righteousness from a supernatural source that is i think the most heinous of all human beliefs but if you want to see magic as functioning from by drawing on some supernature go for it i mean the methodology is more important ultimately i think than the the view we have of the metaphysics beyond it. Um, and of course, in this life, we will never be certain of anything. We see only through a glass darkly. And uh, when the fullness comes, we'll see in the full. But until then, what can you do? So 
thinking about sending ourselves into the earth is what led me to create the meditation of Harpocrates, which you can find on Amazon, and has been copied and put into uh, many grade materials across many orders uh, ever since, uh, mainly because many of those orders, grade material, were created by people that I worked with in the late 90s uh, and uh, were friends with and uh, were students who I taught that to at many international conferences. And they've gone on to create orders or be major players in a lot of the main orders, and that material is now entered into the mainstream, and that's uh, something very good. I think the meditation of Harpocrates, which I have earlier on this podcast in a version I did with someone, not in an ultimate form, is uh, is really a, a piece that was missing in the neophyte grade material. And it prefaces God form work, of course, in the most beautiful way. And if I was to recommend to you, if you anything, it would be to do the meditation of Harpocrates. Then, once you finish that, do the rising up to space and then the Kabbalistic cross. That would be a full ritual in itself, but could also preface any other ritual work like the pentagram rituals and daily banishing or invoking. Lastly, you don't have to spend forever stretching yourself upwards. Like when you're doing this, say, six times a day, which I'd say is the average amount of time that someone's doing the Kabbalistic cross ritual if they're doing a, an initiatory regiment of ritual work and working through an order, um, yeah, you're not going to have time to take 20 minutes or even necessarily going to take five minutes. You can take a couple minutes. You can take a minute. And the more and more you practice it, the easier it is to just do it at will when you're out in the world and really need to elevate or draw in current of a variety of different forms and forces. Let's moving back to uh, what Graham Wheeler says to conclude his research. And there's going to be some interesting things here. He says... It is time to draw the strands of our inquiry together. There are two principal points to be made in relation to the examination that we have conducted. The first may be summed up in the word eclecticism, and the second in the word codification. As to eclecticism, it has become abundantly clear that the sources of the LBRP were extraordinarily varied, and in some cases extremely old. The ritual itself was a modern creation. There is no evidence that anything like it existed in any form before the late 1880s, but it was heavily and self-consciously indebted to earlier sources. Very true. These sources range from the exorcism rites of pre-Christian Mesopotamia to Alephus Levy's ruminations on the Lord's Prayer, taking in Jewish mysticism and Solomonic magic on the way. That's well said. Though I, I always like to remind people that though all of those sources have their roots in not just Mesopotamia, but uh, Egyptian knowledge, it's really important to remember how the debt that Judaism and Christianity owe to Egypt. Judaism essentially almost completely grew out of Egypt. The first reference we have, the very first reference we have to Israel, which is you know, pre-Judaism essentially, is in an Egyptian tablet. And so there is no existing Israel, as far as history knows, before that. And the first reference was them being in Egypt. And it's most likely considered by historians, um, reputable historians, of course, not like fundamentalist ones or, or you know, ones with the, these hardcore agendas, that, that there was groups of people who were enslaved in Egypt. And when they escaped during a war, some of them, ident you know, formed in hill tribes, in, in the lands of in Canaan Hill, the Canaan Hills, and uh, created these twelve 
tribes. And of course, they called themselves the 12 tribes because there's the zodiacal 12, and that was a symbolic thing. Everything in Judaism is using these symbolic numbers, three days and three nights, 30 days and 30 nights. You know, even even the way in Hebrew language that we say things like tohu vevohu, which is from the beginning of Genesis, chaos and desolation. These these This is how they, they speak in the language. It's a wordplay that is very common. Why is Moses' staff Serpent staff made of bronze, well, nechush, nachash, you know. And this is something any rabbi or Hebrew speaker will tell you. We certainly, certainly lost a lot with Alexandria. That is, that is the thing that we know for sure. So, moving on. Pardon my, my low-key energy the last few days. A friend of mine offed himself, a lovely Irish guy, just, yeah, it's a sad time. It's a rough time. If I survive this period of my life, I'll have many stories to tell. It's definitely been hard to calculate the sheer amount of adversity in my life. They were brought together in the late Victorian era to create something new that was distinctly different from the sum of its parts. Sure, why not? Note, this reflects a broader tension in the Golden Dawn between novelty and tradition, which has ignited an ongoing debate about how modern the Golden Dawn system was. See, for example, Plaisance, Magic Made Modern. That sounds like an essay we should read, doesn't it? Let's do that next, maybe. It is particularly interesting that in a number of cases, the ultimate sources of the LBRP are likely to have been obscured to Mathers and to his fellow Golden Dawn Magi, since they came to the latter through mediated channels. It is sometimes said that the Golden Dawn initiates were playing with supernatural forces that they did not fully understand. Okay, well, there's a couple problems, a lot of problems in those two sentences, in my opinion. The, the idea that they didn't understand the sources because they came through mediated channels, that's very similar to like saying that I don't understand that Egyptian mythology or certain Egyptian stories come through the from the Egyptian Book of the Dead because I was taught them through a history teacher. See the problem there? Yeah. So because the Golden Dawn were drawing from sources like Alephus Levy and Freemasonry and paganism, that's to say that they didn't understand that those ideas existed in Egypt and ancient Mesopotamia and, and other ancient Near Eastern cultures? Yeah, that's poor logic at best. Also, the real foil to that argument is the entire, the Prisca theology, um, which is the entire basis of Renaissance Neoplatonism. Marsilio Ficino, Mirandola, Ludovico Lazzarelli, all these people had this idea that they were uncovering a perennial wisdom that went back and as Arisa Victor, Granny Rainbow, always calls it the ageless wisdom, which always gets I always read with a chuckle because you know it's it's so grandiose and how ageless is it, right? It can only go back as far as human history, and there was probably civilizations long before us, as far as we know, and beyond that, who knows? So, if the Neoplatonic Italian Renaissance Magi had this idea that they were resuscitating this Priscus Theologius. This, I, this perennial truth that streams through all of history, the idea that anyone coming from that tradition would then not realize how far back it went, 
doesn't make sense because the entire premise, which I think might be slightly faulty, that all this knowledge comes from some perennial source, some one single fount of all wisdom that flows through time and is unified and, and, and singular and just parts off into streams as we understand it or misunderstand it. That's their idea. That is their whole notion and modus operandi is that all knowledge comes from these ancient streams. So the idea that the rivulets weren't understood to, to be referring like to that ancient stream is absurd because that was their premise. I think it's a faulty premise that all true knowledge comes from one ancient source. I think that's a, a little silly. Um, I think there's a lot more going on. I think it's more complicated than that. But the I, Mathers and them certainly are in the tradition of the Pris, Prisca theologia and the idea that they were a part of this tradition and of knowledge that went back through all time. So to say they weren't aware of how ancient their symbols and rites actually were, no, they erred on the other side altogether. They erred on the side that they thought all of their knowledge went back to the most ancient of sources, perennial and unspoken whisperings from the dawn of time. That was their premise. So how could they not know that these symbols and these these practices of vibration and visualization and focus and meditation went back all the way. That was their premise. So I don't know why, why, uh, Mr. Wheeler thinks that. Um, but again, I think there's a lot of people who are always looking to sort of diminish the traditions that we have. It's just, it's easy. And whenever you're trying to write academic stuff, there's always a tendency to be encouraged to, err on the side of, of uh, over-criticism, of saying, oh, this is what people say, but they're wrong, and it's not right, and it's wrong. Because if you don't do that, then you look like you're just a lackey or a follower of, of uh, what's being said, and you get more credit academically if you criticize in, in the pejorative sense. So that's a tendency a lot of scholars fall into, and I was, I was taught well to be aware of it by people like Nicholas Goodrick-Clark and uh, Sally Mifag and my other professors who were not lured in by either postmodernism, modernism, structuralism, or any of these things. They, were, they taught me to use these things as, see them as models of thought to be used critically with critical thinking and logic and good, hard scholarship. So, to say uh, that they came from mediated channels and that the Golden Dawn initiates were playing with supernatural forces they did not fully understand. Their whole premise was that these forces went back all the way. So to say that they thought these forces were new and only a few hundred years old or went back to Christian Rosenkreutz is absurd. It's, it's, it's completely illogical to say that because that if they made a mistake, they made a mistake on the other side of the spectrum, thinking that everything they did was ancient as all hell. <laughs> The secular scholar cannot confirm or deny such a notion. Well, I just did. But we can say, we can say, that Mathers and his brethren drew on rites and symbols that sometimes went back much further than they are likely to have suspected. Hogwash. They did not fully grasp where their own system had come from. That is just... This is not, of course, an uncommon phenomenon in the religious world, nor one that is confined to the esoteric domain. Well, honestly, I might have done some of my best critical thinking of all time in showing how absurd that is. Um, I really like uh, Wheeler's research, but the reasoning I find incredibly flawed on the most basic of levels. 
Mention of Mathers brings us to the question of how far the LBRP can be regarded as an idiosyncratic product of one man's interest and activities. I guess he's saying as opposed to one man coming from an old tradition that he understood better than most at the time and was using to compile in a way that was more relevant and useful for the people in place around him at this time. See, that's what I would say Mathers did. He was a bearer of the tradition like all these other Freemasons and Rosicrucians were and just mystics in general would they take all the knowledge we take all the knowledge we have and when we create new things or innovations we take what we know and we usually know how far back it goes we at least as far as is possible for anyone to know some of us believe it goes back further than we can prove some of us believe it doesn't but either way we put it together in the best way we're usually not putting it together in an idiosyncratic way just to sort of show our own personal interests that's the that's the practice of one of these copy and paste sort of magicians that you see today more likely than someone who's been rigorously trained and put through the ringer over and over again by teachers to make sure that they understand the actual practices that they've are having passed on to them so when we put them together it's usually in a very self-conscious way um, and very hesitantly, and usually tested in small groups for a long, long time. And if, like, some of the things I've contributed to the tradition over the last 25 years have made it into the broader scope of things to the extent that my name's even been taken off them, that's actually a victory. That's the most flattering thing you can have done to your magical work, is if something you create as a teenager in your diary and then teach throughout your lifetime, and next thing you know, it's being printed in magical manuals and grade materials of orders whose members you've never even met. Like that is, that means you've, I think that as an adept, you've made it. That's, that's, that's the money right there. There's no money of course, but <laughs> like it's something I could never have imagined when I was a, a young magician, you know, essentially literally in high school, just developing my own techniques with Asriel or Harpocrates and all these other different little practices I came up with to tweak the tradition in ways that worked really well for me and then eventually teach them to others. That's funny. Yeah. Oh, man, I'm sad. If one shares Arthur Mackin's negative value judgment, it is easy to attribute this eclecticism of the LBRP and of the Golden Dawn rituals more generally to the personal obsessions of Mathers, of course, that man of much learning but little scholarship, W.B. Yeats called him, or, quote, that comic blackstone of occult lore, A.E. Waite called him. Of course, these men both actually did like Mathers and, you know, took pot shots at him as friends. I mean, sure, Mathers was not, to come of little scholarship, much learning, but little scholarship. See, that's, that's a very nuanced thing Yates said. And I wouldn't disagree. I think Mathers probably did have much learning and little scholarship, but I think he did put things together in a very specific, unique kind of way. And the magical imagination, this is something I talked at length with once about with Frater Yeshi, about how scholars and academic writers have a very, do not make the best occult writers usually. The best occult writers are, are usually writing in a way and think, thinking of things and seeing things in a way and communicating them in a way that isn't according to rigorous academic guidelines, but is serving a different purpose and is really heuristically coming at it 
it from a different methodological angle, trying to achieve something different. So laying out the information in a different order than you normally would for an academic logical argument. That's how you get practical magicians sharing practical knowledge with each other. And I think that Frater Yeshi had a really good point when he said that. So here when Wheeler says, uh, can we just write this off to the personal obsessions of Mathers, a man of much learning and little scholarship, or that comic blackstone of occult lore. Um, Wheeler says actually that such a notion should be challenged, however. In this regard, Mathers was not for once behaving eccentrically. Good, you see, Wheeler Wheeler's makes some very good points. As we have intimated, the LBRP, along with the rest of the Golden Dawn system, amounts to a microcosmic exemplar of trends and phenomena that are characteristic of the esoteric revival more generally. Exactly, he was writing within his time. Mathers's magpie-like appropriation of ideas and symbols collected together and decontextualized from their or- circumstances of origin was far from unique. He was following very major trends. But you, you'll notice this is poor academic writing to, to uh, use pejorative terms like magpie-like appropriation of ideas and symbols. That's where academics, it's one of those thing, times when academics show you, or scholars show you, where their uh, biases lie. And you always want to look for that in a scholar's writing and see where their biases lie. Um, it's very important because it shows you their, their pre-understanding, their vorverständnis, as we say in German. And that gives you an understanding of both their methodology, but also their, their agenda. And you always want to understand what a scholar's agenda is. So, to call it magpie-like appropriation of sim- ideas and symbols as opposed to um, masterful collect- collection uh, and understanding of a vast trove of ancient knowledge, that's a matter of your opinion. And by saying it like this, it's clear that there is a, a dis being made. It occurs to me I should point out there's another good reason why sometimes academics and scholars make disses um, in this field. This essay is published in correspondences. So in the academic realm of studying occultism, it often will do you benefit to take a sort of a, a, you know, a sneering stance towards the practitioners of magic. Um, if you, as an academic, sort of say, I'm studying this, but begrudgingly because these people are basically nuts and I'm just presenting, you know, scholarly knowledge for the sake of scholarship, but I don't buy into any of this crazy nonsense. So if you take that sort of approach a bit, it can be easier to get published. And that's why some scholars do that as well. Um, yeah, even if it's insincere, they'll, they'll take pot shots and be sort of sneering about actual magicians where like people did that with Yeats for the longest time. The only way they could write about his occultism was by saying, Oh, and he did this weird, funny stuff that no one took seriously and that he didn't even really take seriously, despite saying it was the most important thing in his life next to his poetry. But we're going to study it anyway, because you know, no one's really done a good book on it. So let's do that just for the sake of it. But if you took it, if you took it for the longest time, the stance that Yeats had this really, amazing interest and pursuit of something with his whole life that no one else understood and that maybe there's insight there and we could all learn something from that or develop if we did similar practices, then people would just dismiss you flat out. That was the case for most of the history of Yeats scholarship. (sighs) 
So Mathers is more rep- Wheeler does point out Mathers is more representative of his time and place than of a magpie-like unique appropriation of ideas and symbols. The Golden Dawn emerged out of and ran parallel to other currents, including high-degree Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, and Theosophy, which borrowed and experimented with ideas and symbols of diverse and exotic origins. Yeah, we could tear into that a little bit because, you know, Golden Dawn ran less parallel to those things more than developed out of them because of very specifically in reaction to what they were all lacking. So it would be much more fair, again, if you wanted to be fairer to the GD, it would be fair to say they developed because there was no practical Kabbalah going on in those groups. There was no ritual magic going on. There was no yoga of the West happening. And uh, women weren't given a very good uh, representation in those groups at all. Um, Even in Theosophy and Blavatsky's, still it was still a men-led society despite the leadership being women and and there's other there's other issues of sexism in in all of these groups uh, some mainstream freemasonry outright didn't allow women in there was co-masonry going back to the 18th 18th century i found out but anyway so which borrowed and experimented with ideas and symbols of diverse and exotic origins. Hegel Aspirin, for example, has shown in some detail how 19th century occultists from Levy onwards creatively appropriated Kabbalistic concepts for their own spiritual purposes, disembedding them from their Jewish context in the process. That is incredibly accurate. Um, so look at Eagle Asprum's uh, Kabbalah Recreata. Uh, note, Levy himself was influenced in this regard by the 17th century work of Knorr von Rosenroth. The flaw in this, um, that point, though, is really silly because if Asprum is showing in some detail how 19th century occultists from Levy onward, no, it, it goes, These it sounds like neither, like, these people haven't have read the Renaissance writers, so you got to go back to the Renaissance writers, and before that, even to the grimoire writers, back to the 1300s, because that was the whole purpose of the Renaissance Kabbalists and Neoplatonists was to take from Kabbalah a Christianized version of it. Um, that is what they do. In the way we step back into the tree of life and see and have Geburah on our right shoulder and Chesed on our left, in Jewish Kabbalah it would be reversed because we are not stepping into the tree of life and becoming Adam Kadmon. We are reflected. And so the tree is a completely different shoulders and arms. The pillars are on different sides of our body in Jewish Kabbalah. So Christians completely extracted what they wanted and have done some, so since the 1500s, if not earlier. Because we now know from the work of Moshe Adel that um, Raymond Lull was in fact influenced by Kabbalists, even though he never gave any specific uh, proof of that in his own writing. We now know he was corresponding with, I believe it was Abulafia or, or one of those guys. So, yeah, that's, that's a, a silly point made here. There is, of course, a bigger picture here. Outside the esoteric subculture, the era in which the Golden Dawn gestated was particularly fertile in comparativism. The enterprise of finding and linking together elements of disparate cultures was very much in vogue. This is what lay behind Machen's reference to the 1880 and later frame of mind. So Arthur Machen, uh, note, did admittedly underestimate how far back the comparativist tradition could be traced. Its roots dated back in some respects to the 16th century. See Stromza, A New Science. So yeah, there you go, reference to the 1500s. Um, 
this essay presents Arthur Machen's critique without contextualizing it, thus committing this the very crime that it's using Machen to accuse others of, which again is just sort of a sloppy scholarship. You can see why they don't like me in the academic worlds, eh? Yeah, I know. So, this is what lay behind Machen's reference to the 1880 and later frame of mind. Machen thought that what was going on in the Golden Dawn and comparing one thing to the other and saying they're all sort of the same, loosely equivocating them and corresponding them and saying they go back uh, very old, but we don't know how old, shows that Machen just didn't really have the knowledge to even make the critique Machen was making. So, yay. There we, there we go. We should have had that on the page one of this essay. Like, here, here's Arthur Mackin's critique of the Golden Dawn and, and spirituality in the 1880s. It's poorly informed due to Mac, Arthur Mackin's lack of knowledge in general of history. That's what it should have said. As the characteristically Victorian forces of technology and imperialism brought ethnographic data flooding into the European intellectual world, much of that was like, you know, Budge's uh, book on Egypt and study of Egypt, the Egyptian gods, which was uh, done on very poor translations and therefore has been updated ad nauseum by scholars with better understanding of Egyptian. The temptation to fashion that data into ambitious comparativist constructs affected many contemporary thinkers and writers. Yes, it did. And not just on the occultist fringe, occultic fringe of society, but among academic anthropologists and scholars of religion and mythology. This is where we get the critique of the Arianists, uh, of Mircea Eliade, Joseph Campbell, and probably to even some extent James George Fraser, people looking at every element of history and trying to say they're all similar. You see that with the incredibly ridiculous uh, Irish origins of civilization, which someone told me to look at, and I couldn't handle much of it, because you can't just take words that sound slightly similar and say that they're the same and have the same root. You know, just because two things sound similar or look similar... And because you don't understand the actual historical development of those two separate things doesn't mean they're from the same place. Just because it looks like they are doesn't mean they are. You need to actually study the unique qualities and development of those two words or two ideas or two things throughout history and find out if they come from the same source. You can't just say they look the same right now a little bit, like they both have Ds in them, so therefore they're both from Adonis or Adonai or or you're done. You can't do that. You just can't do that. In that case, we know that actually was the case, but you have to trace it. You can't just retroactively decide that these things are all the same. It's called loose equivocation, and it's a serious uh, scholarly sin. So the Golden Dawn appeared just a few years after the publication of E.B. Tyler's Primitive Culture, 1871, at a time when F. Max Müller was about to commence his Gifford Lectures, 1888 to 1892, and the first edition of James Fraser's Golden Bough was shortly to come out in 1890, yeah, which is a remarkable work. But um, note, you can also see further Nichols, Max Müller, and the Comparative Method. Asperum makes the comparison with Fraser's Golden Bough explicit in Kabbalah Recreata. Another respect in which Mather's eclecticism is unsurprising is that it exemplifies how the rituals of new religious movements tend to be assembled from a bricolage of older pre-existing materials. It has been stated that, quote, old and well-established rituals predominantly serve to maintain and stabilize prevailing religious traditions, while rituals in NRMs, that's new religious movements, are 
elements in the installation of experimental novelties. Yet paradoxically, it would seem that such novelties often require the impression of age and authority that is derived from well-constructed rituals based on semi-familiar models. The same paradox may be seen in the broader category of invented traditions that grew up in the period of unprecedented social and economic change between 1870 and 1914, as discussed in the classic volume edited by Eric Hobsbawm and Terence Ranger. And that's Hobsbawm and Ranger's The Invention of Tradition. See also subsequently Lewis and Hammer, Ed's editors of The Invention of Sacred Tradition. Also, Alison Butler identified the Golden Dawn as an example of invented tradition in Victorian occultism. Um, Honograph, of course, Wouter Honograph wrote many books going deeply into this exact process of new religious movements, new ageism, and, and modern traditions formed out of ancient rites and traditions, and there's a lot that can be gotten into on that issue alone. In his critique, Hobsbawm and Ranger's work, Guy Biner noted that the success of invented traditions, quote, very much depends on their association with transformations of existing traditions. I mean, that's not a shock there, right? So if you make something new, the success of it depends on how you are transforming the older thing that it came from. Yeah, I mean, this is where scholars get a little pedantic, and the rest of us can be like, well, duh. I mean, we like often new songs because they remind us of old songs. It, it could be said simpler. In this vein, a Golden Dawn initiate would be presented with quasi-Masonic ceremonies in King James Bible English, studded with words and gestures that were in part broadly recognizable and in part impressive and exotic. The resulting impression of familiarity, mystery, and antiquity must have gone a long way to dispel any sense that the initiate was participating in an essentially novel endeavor, using texts which Mathers had concocted out of books in the era of phonographs and steam turbines. Well, you know what I always say, if the King James Bible was good enough for Jesus, good enough for me. So there's, this is one way of framing that argument, and it could be framed other ways. In a, in a very serious regard. So if you're looking, the, Wheeler here is taking the stance that the syncretic form of the Gondon tradition rituals and initiations are effective and powerful and have sustained really themselves in history the last hundred years because of the, you know, reference to the older traditions and the fancy language of the King James Bible and all these different little you know, symbols from Jakob Burma's Rosicrucianism and all these pagan ideas and, and, and uh, mythologies, and that that's why it worked. And it's completely ignoring the possibility that there's something we like to call spirituality, and the spirituality has a very ancient process to it that actually doesn't differ a lot across cultures and time, and that what was going on was this sort of alchemical representation of that spiritual process simply given this, you know, uh, syncretic paint job of other traditions, maybe with the intention of showing how all traditions are one or how all spiritual transformation of the human soul, no matter what era, time, place, culture, or race you are or come from, is essentially the same story, one of love, let's say, um, 
if this was an essay in a spirituality journal, that would be the angle they would take, and it would be a, a lot more beautifully presented. But because this is done in a journal that has a different agenda, I suppose, and is looking at the fallacies of and in, of innovation and the contrivance of it rather than the spiritual essence behind it, this is what you get. You know, concocted out of books in the era of phonographs and steam turbines. Yeah, uh, I love the pejorative bias there. Um, it cannot be emphasized too strongly that the eclectic and academic nature of Mather's work is likely to have been irrelevant to its effect on those who participated in his rituals. It's quite the uh, assumption. As the scholar of ritual Catherine Bell has noted, purity of lineage has never been important principle of ritualization. Evocative symbols and familiar practices are readily revised for new purposes or reinterpreted for new communities. Absolutely. The question is, are they done so as to hoodwink people into a new fad, or are they successful at creating a new fad because they get the symbolism right and because the, the spiritual practice has an effect that is transformative and fulfilling? See, if you ignore that second point, then it's really easy to be hypercritical and pejorative with the first one. Bell was writing in the context of Soviet communism, a kind of political new religious movement, and its bureaucratically composed public ceremonies. Such observances were at least partially effective in engaging citizens of the workers' paradise. They would find in these rites bits of folk custom remembered from childhood, songs sung in school, formalities that fit their expectations for proper etiquette, and tedious bits of government ideology. That's from Bell, Ritual. See also uh, the Black American Holiday Kwanzaa, which was created in the 1960s out of the authentic but eclectically selected African cultural data. That's what the footnote says. Also, you can take note of the fact that comparing the creation of the LBRP to uh, Soviet communist rituals for uh, cause, you know, encouraging uh, obedience in Soviet Russia's worker paradise, I mean, if you're making, just making those two comparisons tells you a lot about <laughs> the point of view. Coming, coming at you yeah, from the page. One does not have to strain too hard to find a parallel here with the likely effect that Mather's researches in the British Library had on the middle-class Victorian Christians who entered, into, entered the Golden Dawn's temples. Yeah, that's basically saying, oh, they were so impressed by him sitting in a library that they, anyone had access to back then. It wasn't just for PhDs. Um, and, you know, he, using his bits of knowledge to research. He's saying that that impressed the middle-class dum-dums who got... Uh, you know, lured into this order that claimed ancient lineage. This is this is a very bad part of the argument, and a very sad part. Um, Any time you accuse uh, people, you just make the assumption that people are doing what they're doing spiritually because they're stupid and and dumb is uh, you know uncritical thinking. It's a, it's a it's a dangerous thing to do. A more immediate parallel is offered by another 19th century new religious movement for which an elaborate eclectic liturgy was created, the Catholic Apostolic Church, or Irvingites, 
John Bate Cardale, 1802 to 1877, equipped the new Irvingite Church with the Eucharistic service that was combined from Anglican, Protestant, Roman Catholic, and Eastern Orthodox elements, going back to the patristic period, but mediated in many respects through 17th and 18th century scholarly writings. See Lancaster, John Bate Cardale. The basic similarity to Cardale's ende- of Cardale's endeavors to those of Mathers is evident, and it bears noting that the Irvingite liturgy was generally considered, even by outsiders, to be moving and impressive. It should be recognized that the eclecticism is not confined to new religious movements. It is not unusual for established religious communities to draw their rituals creatively from a body of source material that originally came into being in substantially different contexts. So at this point, you, the, the bias is very obvious. Um, and I also think the author is not aware of, of is, is not self-aware of their own active prejudices. And I mean prejudices in, in the technical sense of prejudicia um, or vorverständnis, pre-understanding. Because by criticizing things on one ground, you're giving primacy to another set of assumptions that say things are more only true or valuable in their original context, and once they're removed from their context to another context, they have less value. And that's a very ethnocentric view, and not one that is argued for its validity prior to the its usage in this argument. It's so clear just to say that, that, that this fellow uh, who created the Catholic, Catholic Apostolic Church and mishmash things together to create a different version of the liturgy more based on older patristic uh, writings but within the context of 17th and 18th century scholarly writings it's like oh but it was even found moving and impressive whoa shocking that kind of argumentation is so fallacious it shocks me that it's getting published though not really because to be honest the state of academia today is very sad I mean yeah Maybe I'm just uh, bitter, but I don't think so. I don't think I'm bitter. I just, uh, I just wish they would be more interdisciplinarily rigorous, um, getting locked into their own field so much they don't consider things from outside their perspective at all. It should be recognized that eclecticism is not confined to new religious movements, really. It is not unusual for established religious communities to draw their rituals creatively from a body of source materials that originally came into being in substantially different contexts. Then why did you make that argument in the first place? One clear example of this, see, now just moving on to an example rather than actually showing... Wow, wow. One clear example of this is the Roman Catholic Mass. The components of the, this ritual derive from a varied combination of sources which have quite different origins, genres, and functions. The Lasonic, laconic, repetitive Kyrie can be traced back to a mixture of pagan, Jewish, and early Christian texts. The Gloria is a patristic hymn based on the model of the Psalms. The Credo is a technically precise theological statement which reached its development form at the Council of Chalcedon, 451 CE. The Sanctus derives from the early Israelite prophet Isaiah's vision of the throne of God spliced with a gospel verse which refers to Jesus in a totally different context. And the Agnus Dei is based on the different verse from, again, from the gospels. And so this is all referring to the traditional Latin mass, not the contemporary Latin mass or the contemporary mass. The texts are a mixture of prose and verse, and they contain words 
from several different languages, leaving aside modern vernacular translations. Note, uh, although dated Jungmann, the Mass of the, Roman, of the Roman Rite is still fundamentally the history of the Mass. There are evident parallels here with Mather's Golden Dawn texts, including the LBRP. The difference is that the latter were artificially confected, not the outcome of a long, unplanned process of evolution. They were the product of book learning rather than organic growth. But they looked the part, so to speak. Here we have the basic argument that uh, authentic tradition rituals, and the author would underline authentic or valid uh, rituals, come from an organic growth throughout history, despite the fact that people sat down at councils to cobble these things together oftentimes. Um, Mathers, and that Mather's efforts, like those of Cardale and the Soviet nomenclatura, generated ritual products which had the same kinds of characteristics are, as are found in established religions. The fact that Mather's sources were varied helped rather than hindered his success in this regard. The very eclecticism of the Golden Dawn rites concealed their artificiality and made them look and feel organic and traditional like the Mass. I think the author has completely failed to accurately represent how religious ritual develops historically, organically, uh, in religious and spiritual traditions, and has drawn completely faulty parallels between that process and the process done in new religious movements such as the Golden Dawn or any other modern spiritual organization. I think the two do not line up in the way they said. I think there are different premises that this argument should be based on that would show uh, a more accurate way of perceiving the transmission and development of spiritual activities in ritual form, especially as they are drawn from different traditions. A further noteworthy feature of Mather's eclecticism was that it tied in with the essential ambiguity of the Golden Dawn's religious stance. Oh, really? As manifested by the apparently indiscriminate appropriation of language and imagery from Abrahamic and pagan milieu. On the one hand, the Golden Dawn presented itself explicitly as being affiliated with the Christian tradition. The Order's pledge form stated, Belief in a supreme being or beings is indispensable. In addition, the candidate, if not a Christian, should at least be prepared, be at least prepared to take an interest in Christian symbolism. See, that makes sense. You'll also note that the correct word symbolism is used there in the quote, not symbology. And I'm glad the author did not change symbolism to symbology in that case. And you can see that part of the vow from Ari Gilbert's The Golden Dawn Scrapbook, but you can find it other places as well, of course. But yet, Wheeler moves on. As adumbrated by the reference to beings in the plural, the Golden Dawn writes made explicit reference to pagan gods such as Isis, Horus, and Osiris. The rituals also encouraged the initiate to interact with the divine in ways that went beyond the boundaries of Orthodox Christian worship, leading Ronald Hutton to remark of the LBRP, quote, it was far from obvious whether the kingdom, the power, and the glory belonged to God or were being promised to the human carrying, carrying out the ritual. So, as you touch your forehead and say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen, it's ambiguous as to whether you're saying it is thine as in God's or thine is in your higher self or thine is in your own kingdom, power, and glory, amen. So that ambiguity is unclear there. That seems strange to me, given the high prestige in, in spiritual history 
mystical writings. Again, if any of these folks had studied actual hardcore mystical theology, like mystical theology is it's an actual field. It's a subfield of theology. That's what I studied for most of my life. And people who haven't actually studied mystical theology across the traditions especially generally have a very poor understanding of the rigorous scholarship that has gone into that field. They tend to think that it's not in their field and they see the word mysticism and then use it willy-nilly all over the place and you know themselves fall, fall prey to the very uh, fallacies which they are trying to draw out in their exegesis such as this, which is uh, you know shocking to me. Um, so you, the, the, you don't understand the power of ambiguity. I mean, there's been books and books and books written by mystics and academics across every religious tradition about the importance of ambiguity in religious ceremony, uh, prayer, verse, incantation, invocation, um, in, in alchemical transformation. So to not, to see that as a flaw is literally to miss perhaps the most important thing in that point, right? We're saying, oh, well, this is unclear, therefore it's problematic. It's like, no, the, the lack of clarity is its strength, especially in, in doing the ritual. <laughs> the tension that ambiguity creates is what's so powerful because you don't know if you're talking to your higher self, to your own self, to your lower self, to your neshama, to God, to the universe. Like that, that conflict all and the conceptualization of all of those things at once, like the Hebrew practice of temura, where you're moving the Hebrew root letters around in your mind in intense mental vibration, and you know whether you're, you're vibrating or using the great voice, that causes the ecstatic state to occur. These in, ambiguous practices are very, very important. And to write them off as being unclear due to ambiguity is to miss the entire point. So in response to, oh, you couldn't tell if this was ritual was being done for God, for yourself, or that, you know, you can't tell? The answer is exactly. Over the years, some commentators have succumbed to the temptation to attempt to classify the Golden Dawn and related esoteric currents as essentially Christian or pagan. Gerald York, a well-known figure in the British esoteric community, posited a division between hermetic orders like the Golden Dawn, which, quote, includes some Christianity but do not stress it, and Rosicrucian orders, which are primarily Christian. In this schema, hermeticists, or hermetists he calls them, which is, they're specifically different terms, but whatever, hermetists try to become God, while Rosicrucian Christians only try to become as Christ. That is a very uh, poor synopsis. Um, referenced there, Become as Christ, is for, taken from Kathleen Raines, Yeats, the Tarot, and the Golden Dawn, which that book has many problems, um, but I wouldn't say this is one of them necessarily. It's just to gloss over this debate so quickly is incredibly irresponsible, especially in a conclusion. It's, uh, yeah, unless you dealt with it earlier. In the same vein, we may refer to the attempts of some writers to see A.E. Waite's Golden Dawn successor order, the Fellowship of the Rosy Cross, as safely Christian, while the Golden Dawn itself is labeled as a cult and pagan. Note there, uh, for that point, is Rukema, R-O-U-K-E-M-A, Esotericism and Narrative. Such divisions have the appearance of being ideological and self-serving, obviously. They amount to an attempt 
to force the source material into categories to which it is fundamentally resistant. And that is an excellent point by Wheeler there. And the reference there is uh, Rukema again, the book Esotericism. The central feature of the Golden Dawn's religious stance was its essential ambiguity. At least this is noted. This ambiguity no doubt served a spiritual purpose in the eyes of the Golden Dawn magicians themselves. Ah, thank God. Egil Asperm has written of how the eclecticism of Gondon-style occultism was characterized by comparison, cross-reference, and combination of material disembedded from their original context in search for a universal perennial truth underlying the particular phenomena. Good. That's Egil Asperm, Kabbalah Recreata. This process was, Asperm argues, underpinned by a sincere quest for a universal truth or Sophia Perennis, similar to what I was saying earlier with the Renaissance uh, Prisca Theologia. Uh, Sophia Perennis, which manifested under diverse forms in the world's different spiritual traditions. Right. It is worth noting, however, that the Golden Dawn's studied religious ambiguity served a practical purpose too. This is great. I don't know why this wasn't intimated earlier. Um... Victorian occultists wanted to stray from Orthodox Christian ideas and praxis, but not necessarily too far. They could swallow the worship of Osiris more readily if he was elided with Jesus Christ through cruciform symbolism and the language of death and resurrection. Yeah, I always have a problem with when people say that it was a matter of trying to feed you the medicine with the spoonful of sugar rather than saying... Um, there was a sort of spiritual similarity to these two beings, and they both indicate a, the similar, a similar phenomenon within the human spiritual experience. I have, I have a problem with, with, again, seeing things this way. I believe uh, Graham Wheeler is actually um, a lawyer who works in the history of law, so this is in some ways a very legalistic way of presenting the information um, and just like just like the biases of this author's show, my own biases come through in my reactions to it. <laughs> um, the idea, of course, behind my entire thing here is to take academic and scholarly approaches with spiritual practice to analyzing the information we all have available to us so that we can, you know, enrich our lives as well as sharpen our saws. The Golden Dawn had to accommodate recruits ranging from Anglican clergymen, and for that see Tony Fuller's amazing doctoral dissertation, Anglo-Catholic Clergy in the Golden Dawn. It's just a fabulous read. To the likes of Aleister Crowley. Yeah, to say that they had to attract people like Anglican clergymen as well as people like Aleister Crowley is, is ridiculous, but whatever. The eclecticism of the LBRP and the other rites served as tools for easing the anxieties of the order's more conservative members while also providing material to stimulate those who were looking for an altogether more robustly countercultural experience. Yeah, I, I don't really buy that so much, but it's a, it's, you can't really argue that point. I'm sure there was members who did fit that, that bill. So much for the eclecticism of the Golden Dawn. Oh, yeah, yeah just to write it off. The second main, <laughs> main conclusion to draw from our analysis of the LBRP is that the Order's rights were also codificatory. <laughs> I believe that's how you say that. Codificatory. Codificatory. No, I'm joking now. I'm just having fun with it. Sorry, I haven't smiled in a while. 
The process of drafting a ritual script for a new magical order, in particular, the need to incorporate correspondences in the time-honored occultic manner. And I'm not sure how actually time-honored uh, correspondence practices were. I think it's something that's actually developed quite recently. And by recently, I mean over the last 500 to 1,000 years. <laughs> Involved some significant choices. Choices had to be made between elements of what had previously been diverse and fluid traditions. And in some cases, choices were made that flatly contradicted or departed from those traditions. Once made, the Golden Dawn's choices took on an authority of their own for subsequent generations of esotericists. Absolutely. For people following that tradition, that became the starting point. This point has already been alluded to by previous writers, although it has not been pursued at any at length. Some years ago, Carol Runyon, oh, I know, Poke, noted that the Golden Dawn was required to choose between the competing correspondences contained in the different versions of the Sefer Yetzirah. Poke Runyon was one of my teachers back in 1997 for a very brief uh, week down in Los Angeles. And is a very nice guy. He also practices Bujinkan, like so many of us. Shout out to Ashin Chasan. So, the argument is that there's competing versions of the Sefer Yetzirah. And you can see that in Poke Runyon's uh, Secrets of the Golden Dawn Cipher Manuscript, which is essential reading. Um, though I recommend if you're going to go through the initiations, go through the initiations first. only takes you a few years. Then read the Cipher, the cipher Manuscripts. Because whichever versions of the initiations you go through, as long as the people doing them are serious and know what they're doing, you're going to have a great time. Um, and we can get into the issue of the Sefer Yetzirah further on, because that is one of the texts I know very well. In its Hebrew form, I don't know. These people who debate English translations are, are ridiculous, in my opinion. More recently, Stephen Skinner has pointed out that the order's attributions of Hebrew letters to the planets and to the paths of the Tree of Life differ from those found in historical Jewish Kabbalistic traditions. Well, I certainly don't think we needed Stephen Skinner, Dr. Stephen Skinner, to point that out to us. Um, <laughs> it's sort of obvious for everyone who, uh, you know, studies with a Hasidic rabbi or learns Hebrew like most of us try to do if we, I mean we, we, if we might not not everyone does but most of us try to I've spent time as much as I can with ascetic rabbis and they don't like any of the trend changing or co-option of their tradition by us or by Christians or by occultists they, they, they don't like it at all um, note and in the case of the paths from the original cipher manuscript see, see, manuscript see Stephen Skinner the complete magician's tables and you can see various versions of the paths on the tree of life right as for flatly departing from older source material, Egil Asprum has drawn attention to how Mathers was prepared to use Enochian material from the magic of Dr. John Dee, which he found in the cipher manuscript, even though he knew that the material in question was not true to Dee's original system. And the note there is from Egil Asprum's Arguing with Angels, which is a great essay if you haven't read that. I don't think I covered that, though I read it a couple times. In any event, the choices made by Mathers and his brethren, I always hate it when they say brethren because the Golden Dawn was so, again, it shows bias because the Golden Dawn was so adamant on its female membership being equal, and the results was that the female membership actually was in charge. Funded things, ran things, that's, that's true. I mean, 
is my bias showing a little bit? Like, it was pretty balanced. It really was. Florence Farr, Annie Horniman, you know, a lot of a lot of women had a lot of power. When uh, Ithil Kolkun uh, tried to join the Alpha Omega, it was a woman who interviewed her, ran it, and uh, denied her entrance. So, like, there you go. That's a lot of women power. Again, check out my friend Mary Kay Greer's Women of the Golden Dawn just to see how powerful these women were. They were amazing, amazing women um, that, yeah, were attracted to this order because of its egalitarianism, which is what we used to call fem. That used to be mean feminism, but not anymore, apparently. In any event, the choices made by Mathers and his brethren, once they were written down, taught as a system and eventually published, were codified into something like an orthodoxy, or more accurately, an orthopraxy. There you go. Of course, you could argue brethren includes the, fem- the female sex, technically, linguistically. I know some of you out there are hearing that and going, well, wait a minute, man includes woman. He's like, yeah, sh- shut the fuck up. It's like, you know, don't be a dick. Language language has definitions, but language also changes. So if you're fighting against language change, you're not really doing something wonderful there because it's going to change whether you like it or not. If you're like, oh, we have to keep it so that men always includes women as a linguistic fact, guess what? Language changes. That will change. And we're going to get into that because it it involves the key thing that this essay left out um, due to, again, a lack of Hebrew. This development, and orthopraxy is a fun word, because praxis is not a fancy word. Me me and Nick Farrell have joked about this, because Nick Farrell hates the word praxis, but praxis doesn't actually mean, isn't a fancy word for practice, all right? Praxis refers to a cyclical hermeneutic event of theory creating praxis, practice, sorry, theory creating practice, then practice being revised by experience, creating a new theory that creates a new practice. And that is this sort of unlimited semiosis, if you want to get semiological on it, and of, you know, uh, you know symbol referent and all of that. Um, this is not the time to talk about Ferdinand de Saussure and Charles Sanders' purse, but I highly recommend you look into uh, technical semiotics for understanding cognitive thought and interpretation theory. This development was probable, probably inevitable, given the enormous influence exerted by the Golden Dawn on the modern occult revival. It has been described as the defining occult society in recent Western history. Who said that? Butler in Victorian occultism. That's probably correct. And the tendency to, of, to standardization that is probably inherent in the mass marketing of occult materials. From at least Israel Regardi's time onward, the Golden Dawn system came to be turned into a prepackaged product and an industry standard one at that. Here was timeless wisdom to be followed rather than questioned. That sounds like someone who is basically knows the Golden Dawn from reading about it. Most of us who actually went through the Golden Dawn and became adepts in the Golden Dawn, most of actually, I, I'm sort of rare in that I read a lot of it before I joined at age 15, but a lot of people didn't read anything. They just joined. A lot of our best initiates were always people who um, knew nothing about it. They just saw a flyer and, and came and were like, what's this? And we told them what it was, and they're like, yeah, sign me up. And um, 
So orthopraxy and praxis is a much better way of seeing it. They didn't see it as a dogmatic system. They saw it as the tradition as we were bringing it to them through our practices and experience, which were rigorous and ad nauseum in, in our temple work and in our theory development and reading of new literature and materials all the time, like every day, and developing a tradition that kept growing and growing and growing. This sounds like the perspective of someone who only knows the Golden Dawn from the Regardi book or something like that, which is, again, most people. And that's fine. It's fine. It just isn't what it's about. Let me say that another way. The Golden Dawn is not a codified dogmatic system of rituals that were uh, set in stone over 100 years ago and then published. The Golden Dawn is the living tradition of everyone who's been initiated and practicing it ever since then. That's what it is. And it changes and develops and grows with time. And if you want to be part of one of those orders that doesn't believe in that, that's fine. You're still part of the tradition, just a different flavor of, the, of ice cream, really. Again, what matters at the end of the day is that you find love, your love of your higher self and the love that transforms your own life and gives you the tools of transformation on a minute-to-minute daily basis. Like, I tell you. I I wouldn't be alive without these tools because especially now like I'm just you know in the midst of a battle for my life and soul. Wheeler says uh, calls it made by those who composed them an air of immutable authority. They were accepted by those who were not in a position to question them, and they exerted substantial influence even on those who were. That just wasn't my experience or the experience of most of the people I've known in the Golden Dawn of, across all orders. Um, so <laughs> sometimes I talk to magicians and occultists and witches or wizards or whatever, and they give me a perspective like, oh, it's just a bunch of Instagram wizards or magicians out there and everyone's a hack. No one knows how to do ritual. I hear this all the time, and I always think, you know, I think you're hanging out with the wrong people. Like, who are you hanging out with? Um, if your magical outlet is on Instagram, like I've met some amazing people, which is why I'm still on it, despite my best, better judgment. Um, but if if you're if you're if you're finding that you're viewing an entire field of study or spiritual practice um, inundated with flakes and wastrels, it's maybe partly your responsibility to attract a better class of person. Maybe maybe that has something to do. You should look within and see how seriously are you taking it? Because if you take it more seriously, maybe practice a little bit more harder, you might attract some of the more serious people because the serious people are out there. But they're not wagging their chins all the time on podcasts and, and YouTube and Instagram. Uh, you know, we, we do what we can. But the most serious people you never hear from at all. Uh, And that's just a fact. Moving on, once again, this is a particular case of a broader phenomenon. Christian scholars have made a similar point in noting that the invention of printing not only froze the text of the church's liturgy, but also constituted it as a new, reified authority source. Note, um, see Cruan, C-R-O-U-A-N, The History and the Future of the Roman Liturgy, if you want, where it says, quote, Instead of tradition guaranteeing the missal, the missal becomes the guarantee of the tradition. 
Now, this is something they, that we study backwards and forwards in seminary and uh, in religious scholarship and theology, understanding the various intricate hermeneutics. You'll notice there hasn't been any reference to hermeneutics or the understanding of various hermeneutic forms of interpretation and sources of authority, tradition, scripture, experience, all of these, you know, the four traditional sources, the debates of the four traditional sources. And that's because often, again, because we're compartmentalized in academia, unfortunately, scholars often don't know anything outside of their own wheelhouse. And then when they stretch to comment on things outside their wheelhouse, they're doing it with the tools of their wheelhouse and those tools are designed for their wheelhouse, not for the very different thing they are working on. You might be able to fix a car engine. That doesn't necessarily mean you can fix a motorbike, I assume. I don't really know much about either. Unless it's like a VW, I guess. In the case of the Golden Dawn, of course, the crucial development was not the invention of printing technology, but rather the increase in the number of esotericists who were interested in using it. Together with the growth of the book-buying public with sufficient levels of wealth and literacy to sustain a small but viable market for books on unusual spiritual topics, it was no longer a world in which the occasional literate, literate rabbi wrote down his Kabbalistic theories for posterity, freely reinterpreting and reshaping his inherited materials, but rather a world of modern communications in which the Golden Dawn brand was eventually to become a kind of Microsoft in the esoteric subculture. In such a world, the decisions that Mathers made while poring over his books have taken on a life of their own. I mean, that's all a fair point. Though I wonder, even if these books had been published, and were, you know, even if... Even if Given what Mathers did and all of the rest of them did, and the fact that Regardi and the rest and others published them, would they have taken on a life of their own if it wasn't for everyone practicing them and people passing on the tradition? I don't know. I really don't think that the texts actually had that much power um, outside of the people practicing them and the group sustaining them. Like, imagine, like we were uh, we were a twenty four seven temple at Tehuti. It was it was crazy just the cost of incense and candles alone would, would shock you. And the amount of work it took to keep things going, classes every night of the week, rituals and initiations multiple times a month, like just all of that was an incredible amount of work. And it had very little to do with any published texts. In fact, the Regardi texts were considered secondary because of because, you know, it's the Stella Matatina stuff, and there was a lot of other stuff that we focused on more. And, uh, you know, when it came to Kabbalah, a lot of traditional Kabbalah was brought in, and as it always is by anyone who's serious about their spiritual life and, and the spiritual practice. So I don't think this whole thing about the text becoming these dogmatic, biblical authorities is, is, has much weight to it, honestly. Outside of the group of people who never went through a real temple. The LBRP is only a short ritual, and one that might, that might at first sight, seem somewhat banal. <laughs> yeah, well, you haven't seen it done right then, eh? But the examination that we have undertaken shows that it richly repays closer study. We have seen that the LBRP exemplifies the eclecticism of the sources of the Golden Dawn rites and how they have come to serve as the foundation of a magic, modern esoteric orthopraxy. In these regards, the LBRP is far from being anthropologically unusual, even if its content would be found baffling by the uninitiated. 
The Golden Dawn and its members may be described as eccentric, but on closer inspection, their ritual materials, pro- ritual material proves to fit in well both with their to- own time and culture and with wider trends in the history of re- ritual and religion. Well, overall, I'd say this is a, a great a great article, great essay. It, it is, I should note, um, an advanced copy, so it might have slight changes when it's published by correspondences, but it's put up on their website for all of us to read and commentate upon. And uh, I think it's it's arguing that this is all developed anthropologically in a sound normative kind of way. You know, even though it says if its content would be baffling to the uninitiated, I don't think it would be baffling to the uninitiated at all because I started doing the LBRP when I was, what, I think 13 or I might have tried the first time when I was 12 um, when I found the book, as I mentioned last time. This is, of course, a part two, a conclusion to the previous LBRP history and analysis that we did. And um, I got a Regardi's Tree of Life book from uh, OTO House that my mother lived in and I with her briefly when I was 10 or 11, 10, 11. And uh, after that, we got into Wicca and uh, Druidry when I was 12, 13, 14. And that's what I was really into. But the ritual work seemed so vague. I remember I sat down after reading DJ Conway's Celtic Magic after having my spiritual awakening in Penticton, British Columbia, on the night of these huge forest fires, ironically. And when I got back home, I made my first druid altar, and I sat down, and I, I was ready, and everything was set up on the altar. I had all my tools, and I sat there. I was like, well, what's, what's going to... Nothing happened. Nothing happened. I was like, what do I do? Oh, I don't know. And I started practicing many, many things, from Scott Cunningham, primarily, of course, for a long time, for the next year or two, it was just Scott Cunningham and, and various other tidbits from the Crowley and the Golden Dawn stuff didn't resonate with me because there was these archangel names that I, I really didn't like. I didn't recognize the Lord's Prayer thing at all because I didn't grow up Christian in any way, shape, or form. I grew up in a Maharishi transcendental meditation household with Ayurvedic food um, and reading the Bhagavad Gita every day instead of the Bible. So I didn't really know anything about Christianity at all except what I heard from other kids or pop culture, and I hadn't really started seriously reading Rudolf Steiner yet, so I didn't know much too much about um, hermeticism. But I did. I had joined ancient mystical order Rosea Crucis and drove down there uh, to get a exception exemption to join the adult curriculum as a young teenager and that all worked out fine. And then I saw the adult curriculum, I was like, well, this seems watered down as hell. It's not for me. Um, you know, did the initiations at the Vancouver Temple because my mom was best friends with all the, the hot, top people there in British Columbia and Vancouver, and that was all. That was all good, but there wasn't much magic. There wasn't much practical ritual work, like how, like even the simple rituals we do, like artificial elementals in our tradition, in my tradition, and and uh, a bunch of other ritual work that is just so powerful. Um, when I first did the LBRP, really intently was from Don Craig's book. And that was because he laid out a quick pathway to becoming an adept. And I was like, well, clearly that's what I am. I have to make that happen ASAP. And so at 14, 15, that's what I was working on. Like, you know, my little three to six month curriculum to go from zero, zero to five equals six really fast. Boom. 
And uh, that, that, of course, went disastrously, leading me to actually join the Temple Tehuti that was founded and run by Nineveh Shadrach, very own of Frater Ka, and uh, began a serious practice in which I saw how vibration actually is done and, and how ritual work actually works. And, but before that, I was doing the LBRP out of Wicca and Druidism. And it worked fine for me. I could, I, I, when I really took what I had learned from a few years of Wicca and Druidry and applied it then to the LBRP seriously because I just needed more powerful magic is what it felt like and did the archangels, did everything the way I was told, it was shocking. It was like, whoa, I actually felt energy around me. The formula was right in a way that none of the Wicca stuff really worked out for me so well. It didn't seem, I didn't know the structure. You know, I'd cast a circle, I'd call the watchtowers, but it, it, there was no vibration. There was, there was no symbol visualization in, in the same way that we do in ceremonial magic. And it's not for everybody, but it does have a lot of power. And there was no baffling to me as an un uninitiated person. So I don't know why anyone would think that. Again, it sounds like someone who's never done anything before spiritually, um, but even, including the Roman Catholic Mass, because I think if you are familiar with Catholicism, the LBRP would make a lot of sense. If you're familiar with Judaism or any religion, especially like Buddhism or any any of the Eastern ones, I think it, the LBRP makes a ton of sense. And you're create, you know, purifying energy, projecting energy, drawing down energy, calling angels, spiritual spirits. You're calling four spirits is what they are, because Angels is a job title. It's more a verb than a, than a noun, really. Um, and Michael, Raphael, Oriel, Uriel, these are spirits that govern vast dominions. And you're calling these spirits to guard and watch over and purify the four quarters of your circle, of your sphere of sensation. The, this was a very powerful thing when I really set my mind to taking it seriously and doing it every day. And I've shared on my Patreon forward slash Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and uh, other places, bits of my diary, which I'm going to be dumping out all of my diaries, all the pages with videos and commentaries on everything that I went through very soon um, once I get back to Canada. And um, sharing that journey because it was profound to say the least. And it definitely changed who I was as a person for the better in remarkable ways that people noticed and were baffled by. That's what, what people were baffled by, was the effects that the LBRP and its middle pillar and all the associated ritual work and initiations and, and practices that I did endlessly with as much vigor as you could ever imagine. They changed me into someone that no one could recognize from the person I was before. Partly, I think this was because I was young and I was growing up, and people change as they grow up into you know, manhood and womanhood or whateverhood. But also I changed to, I didn't just grow up. I could, I think I would have just grown up as a gamer, but I abandoned video games. I abandoned gaming almost entirely by, by my late teens and became a much more impressive person than I think I would have. I probably would have become a multimillionaire if I had just stayed as a champion Street Fighter II player, but that's, that was not the path for me, so... Let's end by talking about the great and mighty Ata, which I guess some people would say comes from the Egyptian word Aten, or the god Aten. Um, you know, if you wanted to really 
botch your linguistic philological understanding of things, you could say it's got an A in it, so it relates to the word Ani, which is the candidate in the book of the coming forth by day, the Egyptian book of the dead is named Ani, and he is the one symbolized on the pillars going through the journey. He's the archetypal Adam Kadmon of the book of the dead and the pilgrimage of the soul. Um, but that's, that's ridiculous. Ani, of course, does relate to the Hebrew word, which means I. If you say Ani, that means I in Hebrew. Um, if it's Aramaic, you say Anah. Right, so in a Hebrew, you'd say, I'm not an American, Ani lo Amerikai. In Aramaic, you would say, I'm not an American, Anachlach Amerikaya. There you go. It's very similar languages, but different. Ata means for thine in King James English, for you. It means you. It's the second person uh, singular, is what Ata is. The thing that these people don't get is, um, well, they're saying, well, who are you referring to when you say Ata? Who is the, who is the you? Well, the you is masculine. How do you like that? Ata is masculine. If you were saying you to a woman, you'd say at, just a left tav instead of a left tav hey. So when you say ata, you are saying for you, guy or dude, masculine. Why do we say that? Well, could we change that? I think you could. I think if you wanted to say at instead of ata and call your kether sphere, your forehead, Feminine, you could. If you wanted to represent goddess instead of God, divine above you, you could do that. The best argument for keeping it masculine and not even pluralizing it, which could easily be done, is that ata, kether, is often sometimes seen as male because it creates that that sort of phallic simsum from the from the retraction in the void, which the, the nothingness, of course, is the enveloping female of nothingness and infinity and light. The universe itself is female. And then from that comes the direct beam of light, the masculine force, the right, the <clears throat> the line from the circle or from the point. And Crowley, of course, likes to characterize that very well with his uh, Hadith and Nagit. Uh, Hadith and, yeah, you know, you know what I mean. And uh, then Malkut is seen often as feminine, being the, the kingdom of the Shekinah. The Shekinah is the divine feminine presence of God on earth. The Shekinah is always feminine, um, equated with Isis and Mary. And God in the world is a female force, Mother Nature, and therefore Malkut, the kingdom. And we often in Kabbalah, we have the, the famous saying of Malkut is in Keter and Keter is in Malkut. So we say for thine is the kingdom, for thine male, Keter is the kingdom, Ata, Malkut, Vigbura, Vigadula, Le'olam, Amen. You can say Vehagabura, Vehagadula, and that's more accurate to modern Hebrew. They didn't really care too much in older Hebrew, just like they didn't mark the vowels. This still had vowels like vav, ayin, um, the letters that look in Hebrew like vowels aren't vowels. The vowels weren't written, and the diacritical notations are the vowels. They just weren't written down, but they were assumed in older texts before the writing of the Mishnah and the Targums and all of that stuff in the early Bible, Bible texts in the early Middle Ages, like I think 4th century, 5th century, I believe.
Anyway, so you could do a couple different things there. You could keep it as it is, representing that the masculine polarity is above you and the feminine polarity is below you, and they are, of course, one like the yin-yang. Or you could, say, change it and make the goddess above you if you wanted to do a, a you know, goddess worship feminine version of the Kabbalistic cross, or pluralize it if you want to really have some fun there. And I'll leave you to figure out what the plural of you second person is in Hebrew. It's not hard to find, and I always encourage people to learn at least a little bit more Hebrew than just the alphabet. It's a lot of fun. It's not hard. It's a pretty simple language. You don't believe me when I say that, but trust me, it's true. Um, I think that's it. Um, you can go a lot into the Kabbalistic significance of these things, but of course we've already done that with the the uh, the tree of life sphere on the sphere um, and in the four worlds in general in uh, in previous discussions and we'll do we'll talk about that a lot going forward because that's something we never stop talking about the debating and discussing of that is the essence of kibel of Kabbalah and that is why we're doing this that is why I'm talking to you and that's why you're talking back to me and we're all talking to each other let's keep the dialogue going people we don't need any dogmatism or any uh, you know. Uh, we don't need to throw out our inquisitive learning minds and always keep it remembering that we don't necessarily know that we're right. We have provisional beliefs and practices that get us to the next stage, and often those provisos have to be thrown away because of the stage we get to, they no longer apply to, and be ready to uh, delimit yourself of, of beliefs when they become restrictions rather than sources of freedom. Peace profound, my friends. Wish me luck on my journeys. As a last note, if anyone does want to help my dangerous travel back to Canada, go to hermeticspiritualdirection.com and there's a donate button there. Cheerio. <laughs> Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. Hermetic Science Enterprises.co.uk